Chapter 18 of Murder at Bridge. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Stephanie Koenig. Murder at Bridge by Anne Austen. Chapter 18. It was exactly twelve o'clock when Lydia Carr, accompanied by Detective Collins of the Homicide Squad carrying a small suitcase, arrived at the district attorney's office. I kept my eye on her every minute of the time to see that there wasn't no shenanigans. Collins informed Dundee and Sanderson importantly, callous to the fact that the maid could hear him. But I let her bring along everything she said she needed to lay the body out in. Was that right? Right, agreed the district attorney, as Dundee opened the suitcase upon Sanderson's desk. The royal blue velvet dress lay on top, neatly folded. Dundee shook out its folds. It looked remarkably fresh and new, in spite of the years it had hung in Nita Salim's various clothes closets, preserved because God alone knew what tender memories. Perhaps the beautiful little dancer had intended all those years that it should be her shroud. "'Oh, it's lovely!' Penny Crane, who was looking on, cried out involuntarily. "'It looks like a French model!' "'It's a copy of a French model. You can see by the label on the back of the neck,' Lydia answered her one good eye softening for Penny. "'So it is,' Dandy agreed, and took out his penknife to snip the threads which fastened the white satin, gold-lettered label to the frog. "'Pierre model, copied by Simonson's New York City,' he read aloud, and slipped the little square of satin into the envelope containing the murdered woman's will. "'Well, Penny, I'm glad you like the dress, for I'm going to ask you to do the mannequin stunt in it as soon as Carraway arrives with his camera.' Penny turned very pale, but she said nothing in protest, and Dundee continued to unpack the suitcase. His masculine hands looked clumsy as they lifted out the costume slip and miniature dancing set brassiere and step-ins, all matching, of filmiest white chiffon and lace. His fingers flinched from contact with a switch of long, silky black curls. She bought them after we came to Hamilton, Lydia informed him, pointing to the undergarments. Them black moiré palms and them French stockings are brand new, too. Hundred gold silk them stockings are, and never on her feet. Ready for me? Caraway had appeared in the doorway, with camera and tripod. Yes, Caraway. Just the dress, Penny. I want full-length front, back, and side use of Miss Crane wearing this dress, Caraway. Flashlights, of course. Better take the pictures in Miss Crane's office, Dundee directed. You stay here, Lydia. I want to talk with you while that job is being done. Yes, sir, Lydia answered, and accepted without thanks the chair he offered. I suppose you have read the Hamilton Morning News today, Lydia? I have. May I have the paper, Chief? Thanks. Now, Lydia, I want you to read again the paragraphs that are headed New York, May 25th and tell us if the statements are correct. Lydia accepted the paper, and her single eye scanned the following lines obediently. New York, May 25th, UP. Miss Juanita Le Salim, who was murdered Saturday afternoon in Hamilton, was known along Broadway as Nina Lee, chorus girl and specialty dancer. Her last known address in New York was number... blank, West 54th Street, where she had a three-room apartment. According to the superintendent, E.J. Black, 
Miss Lee, as he knew her, lived there alone except for her maid Lydia Carr, and entertained few visitors. Irving Vine, publicity director for Altamont Pictures, when interviewed by a reporter in his rooms at the Cadillac Hotel late today, said that Nida Lee had been used for bits and as a dancing double for stars in a number of recent pictures, including Nightlife and Boy Howdy, both of which have dancing sequences. Musical comedy programs for the last year carry her name only once, in the list of ladies of the ensemble, of the review What of It? Miss Eloise Pendleton, headmistress of Foresight on the Hudson, mentioned in the dispatches from Hamilton, confirms the report that Mrs. Salim, as she was known there, twice directed the annual Easter musical comedy presented by that fashionable school for young ladies, but could add nothing of interest to the facts given above, beyond asserting that Mrs. Salim had proved to be an unusually competent and popular director of their amateur theatricals. Yes, that's correct as far as it goes. Lydia commented, resentment strong in her harsh voice, as she returned the paper to Dundee. "'Have you anything to add?' Dundee caught her up quickly. "'No, sir.' Lydia shook her head, her lips in a grim line. Then resentment burst through. "'They don't have to talk like she was a back number on Broadway, just because she was tired of the stage and going in for movies.' District Attorney Sanderson took her in hand then pelting her with questions about Nita's New York gentleman friends, but he made no more headway than Dundee. "'We know that Nita Selim was afraid of someone,' Sanderson began again, angrily. "'Who was it? Someone she'd known in New York? Or somebody in Hamilton?' "'I don't know,' Lydia told him flatly. "'But you do know she was living in fear of her life, don't you?' Dundee interposed. "'I... well, yes, I suppose she was.' Lydia admitted reluctantly, but I thought she was just afraid to live out there in that lonesome house away off at the end of nowhere. Was she afraid of Dexter Sprague? Sanderson shot at her. Would she have asked him to stay all night if she had been afraid of him? Lydia demanded scornfully. And would she have asked him to rig up a bell from her bedroom to mine if it was him she was afraid of? A bell? Dundee echoed. "'Yes, sir. It has a contraption under the rug, right beside her bed, so she could step on it, and it would ring in my room, which was underneath hers. Mr. Sprague bought the wire and stuff, bored a hole through her bedroom floor, and fixed it all himself.' "'Did anyone know Nita had taken this precaution to protect herself?' Dundee asked. "'Miss Lewis did, because one day not long ago she stepped on it accidentally, when she was in Nita's room.' The bell burst in my room, and I come up to answer it, and Nita explained it to Miss Lewis. So that was why no attempt had been made to murder Nita while she slept, Dundee told himself triumphantly, for of course it was more than probable that Lewis Dunlop had innocently spread the news of Nita's nervousness and her ingenious method of summoning help instantly. There was a knock at the door. Come in. All finished, Carraway? Fine. I'd like to see the prince as soon as possible, and now I'd like you to go over to the morgue with Lydia, and wait there until she has the body dressed in these clothes, and the hair done according to the instructions Mrs. Selim left. I'll leave the posing to you, but I want a full-length picture as well as a head-portrait. As Lydia's work roughened knuckly hands were returning the funeral clothes to the suitcase, another question occurred to Dundee. Lydia! 
Did you know before I questioned you at the Miles home yesterday that Sprague had returned for that bag he had left in the bedroom upstairs? Her scarred cheek flushed livid, but the maid answered with defiant honesty. Yes, I did. He spoke to me through my basement window, just before you come running down to talk to me. He'd sneaked back, but he could tell from seeing your car outside that you was there, and he asked me to go up and get the bag and set it outside the kitchen door for him. I said I wouldn't do it. It was too risky. Then you were pretending to be asleep when I entered your room? Yes, I was, but I had been asleep before Mr. Sprague called me. While you was ding-donging at me about Nita burning my face, I heard Mr. Sprague open the kitchen door. He had a key Nita had given him, so he could slip in unnoticed if he happened to come when Nita had other company. He didn't hardly make any noise at all, but I heard it because I was listening for it. You'd left the door to the basement stairs open, and my door too, so I heard him. Did you hear him come down? Yes, I did. There's a board on the back stairs that squeaks, and I heard it plain, while you were still at me hammer and thongs. Lydia answered. He was in the house not more than two minutes, all told, and when I figured he was safely out, I went upstairs with you to show you the presents I'd give Nita after she burned me, to prove I'd forgive her. Why didn't you tell me, Lydia? Why did you protect Spark? I know you don't like him, Dundee puzzled. I wasn't thinking about him, Lydia told him flatly. I was thinking about Nita. I didn't want any scandal on her, and I knew what the police and the newspapers would say if they found out Mrs. Sprague had been staying all night sometimes. Are you prepared to swear Sprague had time to do nothing but go up to the bedroom and get his bag? I am. When Lydia and Carraway had left together, Dundee rose and addressed the district attorney. I'm going out to the Salim house now to look for that secret hiding place where Roger Crane kept his securities and which Judge Marshall evidently displayed to Nita as one of the charms of the house when she rented it. Why not simply telephone Judge Marshall and ask him where and what it is? Sanderson asked reasonably. Do you think he'd tell? Dundee retorted. The old boy's no fool. Even if he didn't kill Nita himself and hide the gun there, my question would throw him into a panic of fear lest one of his best friends had done just that. No, I'll find it myself, if it's all right with you. But after a solid hour of hard and fruitless work, Bunny Dundee was forced to admit ruefully to himself that his parting words to the district attorney might have been the youthful and empty boast that Sanderson had evidently considered them. For nowhere in the house Roger Crane had built and in which Nita Salim had been murdered could the detective find anything remotely resembling a concealed safe. The two plainclothes men, whom Strawn had detailed to guard the house and to continue the search for the missing gun and silencer, looked on with unconcealed amusement as Dundee tapped walls, floors and ceilings in a house that seemed to be exceptionally free of architectural eccentricities. Finally, Dundee grew tired of their ribald comments and curtly ordered them to make a new and exhaustive search of the unused portions of the basement, those dark earth banks, with their overhead networks of water and drain pipes, heavily insulated cables of electric wires, cobwebby rafters and rough shelves holding empty fruit jars and liquor bottles, which contrasted sharply with a neatly sealed and cement-floored space devoted to furnace, laundry and maid's room. 
Dundee himself had given those regions only a cursory inspection with his flashlight, for it was highly improbable that Nina Selim would have made use of a secret hiding place for her jewelry and valuable papers if that hiding place was located in such dark, awesome surroundings. No. The hiding place, if it really existed, and it must exist, had been within easy reach of Nina dressing and bedecking herself for a party, or Lydia Carr could not have been kept in complete ignorance of its location. With that conviction in mind, Dundee returned to Nita's bedroom, to which he had already devoted at least half an hour. Nothing in the big clothes closet, where Flora Miles had been hiding while Nita was being murdered, no secret doors in the desk or dressing table or bedside table, no false bottom in boudoir chair or chaise longue. He had even taken every book out of the four-shelf bookcase which stood against the west wall near the north corner of the room, and had satisfied himself that no book was a leafless fake. His minute inspection of the bathroom and back hall, upon which Nita's bedroom opened, had proved as fruitless, although he had removed every drawer from the big linen press which stood in the hall, and measured spaces to a fraction of an inch. As for the walls, they were, except for the doors, unbroken expanses of tinted plaster. And yet... He stepped into the clothes closet again, hammer in hand for a fresh tapping of the setterboard walls. Nothing here. And then he tapped again, his ear against the end wall of the closet, the wall farthest from the side porch. Yes, there was a faintly hollow echo of the hammer strokes. Excitement blazing high again, he took the tape measure with which he had provided himself on his way out, and calculated the strength of the closet from end to end, six feet. Emerging from the closet, he closed his eyes in an effort to recall in exact detail the architect's blueprint of the lower floor, which Coroner Price had submitted to his jury at the inquest that morning. Yes, that was right. The inner end wall of Nita's clothes closet was also the back of the guest closet in the little foyer that lay between Nita's bedroom and the main hall. Within ten minutes, much laying on of the tape measure had produced a startling result. Instead of having a wall in common, the guest closet and Nita's clothes closet were separated by exactly eleven inches. Why the waste space? The blueprint, bearing the imprint of the architects Hammond and Hammond, showed no such walled-up cubbyhole. Exultantly, Dundee again entered Nita's closet and went over every inch of the narrow horizontal saddle boards which formed the end wall, but he met with no reward. Not through this workmanlike, solidly constructed wall had an opening been made. But in the fire closet he read a different story. Its back wall had an amateurish look. This closet was not saddle-lined, as was Nita's, but was painted throughout in soft ivory. But it was the back wall of the closet in which Dundee was interested. Unlike the other walls, which were of plaster, the back was constructed of six-inch-wide boards, the cheapness of the lumber not concealed by its coat of ivory paint. No self-respecting builder had put in that wall of broad, horizontal boards. And then, directly beneath the shelf, which was set regulation height, just above the pole on which swung a dozen coat hangers, Dundee found what he was looking for. A short length of the cheap board, a queer scrap to have been used even in so shoddy a job as that was, eight inches long, and set square in the center of the wall, just below the shelf and pole. If he had not been looking for something odd, however, Dundee acknowledged to himself 
he would not have noticed it. Did anyone ever notice the back walls of closets? Sure of the result, he pressed with his fingertips upon the lower end of that short piece of board, and slowly it swung inward, the top slanting outward. He had found the secret hiding place, and Dundee silently agreed with Judge Marshall that it was the simplest and most ingenious arrangement you ever saw, for it was nothing more nor less than a shelf set between the two closets, in those eleven inches of unaccounted-for space. "'I take off my hat to Roger Crane,' Dundee reflected. "'No burglar in the world would ever have thought of pressing upon a short piece of board in a foyer-closet in search of a safe. But how did Judge Marshall know of his existence?' The only answer Dundee could think of was that Crane, overseeing the building of his house, had suddenly conceived this brilliant and simple plan, and had tipped one of the carpenters to carry it out for him. Possibly, or probably, he had bragged to Clive or Ralph Hammond, his architects, of his clever invention. And the Hammond boys had passed on the information to Judge Marshall when, after Crane's failure and flight, the house had become the property of the ex-judge. These thoughts rushed through his mind as his flashlight explored the shelf through the tilted opening. The gun and silencer must be here, since they could be no place else. But the shelf was bare, except for a small brass box, fastened only by a clasp. In his acute disappointment, Dundee took little interest in the collection of pretty but inexpensive jewelry, Nida's trinkets, undoubtedly, which the brass box contained. No wedding ring among them. In spite of his chagrin at not finding the gun, Dundee studied the simple mechanism which Roger Crane's ingenuity had conceived. From the outside the eight-inch length of wood board fitted smoothly, giving no indication whatever that it was otherwise than what it seemed, part of a cheaply built wall. But Dundee's flashlight played upon the beveled edges of both the short board and the two neighboring planks between which it was fitted. The pivoting arrangement was of the simplest, the small nickel-plated pieces being set into the short board and the other two planks with small screws, which did not pierce the painted outside surface. His curiosity satisfied, Dundee stepped out of the closet into the tiny foyer. He was about to leave, when a terrific truth crashed through his mind and froze his feet to the floor. Of course the gun and silencer were not there. This was the guest closet. In it had hung the hat of every person who had been Nita's guest, either for bridge or cocktails, that fatal Saturday afternoon. And to this closet, to retrieve hat, stick, or, in the case of the woman, summer coat and hat, had come every person who had been questioned and then searched by the police. Dundee tried to recapture the picture of the stampede, which had followed upon his permission for all guests to go to their homes. But it was useless. He had stayed in the living room, withdrawn, had taken not the slightest interest in the scramble for hats, coats, and sticks, for Strawn had previously assured him that the guest closet had been thoroughly searched. So quickly that he felt slightly dizzy, Dundee's thoughts raced around the new discovery. This changed everything, of course. Any one of half a dozen persons could have arrived with a gun and silencer, not screwed together, of course, because of the ungainly length, and seized the opportunity presented by Nita's being alone in her bedroom to shoot her. What easier, then, than to hide the weapon on this secret shelf, the door of which yielded to the slightest pressure? And what easier than to retrieve the weapon after permission had been granted to all to return to their homes?
easy enough to manage to go alone to the closet for a hat, the extra minute of time unnoticed in the general excitement. It had been vitally necessary, too, to retrieve the weapon, since any innocent member of that party might have remembered later to mention the secret hiding place to the police, secret no longer since Judge Marshall had gossiped about it. Then another thought boiled up and demanded attention. In the new theory, what place did the bang or bump have? That noise which Flora Miles concealed in Nita's closet had dimly heard. Dundee had been positive when Lydia had discovered the shattered electric bulb in the big bronze lamp that its position in Nita's room indicated the progress of the flight of the murderer. Flight diagonally crossed the room toward the back hall. But now... A little dashed, Dundee returned to the bedroom. The big lamp was where he had first seen it, about a foot beyond the window nearest the porch, and at the head of the chaise longue, which was set between the two west windows, where, according to Lydia, the lamp always stood. The too long cord lay slackly along the floor near the west wall, and extended to the double outlet on the baseboard behind the bookcase. A slack cord! Down on his hands and knees Dundee went, to peer under the low bottom shelf of the bookcase. Yes, the pronged plug of the lamp cord had been jerked almost out of the baseboard outlet. It was easy to visualize what had happened. The murderer, after firing the shot, had involuntarily taken a step or even several steps backward until his foot had caught in the loop of electric cord, causing the big lamp to be thrown violently against the wall near which it stood. But who? Any one of half a dozen people. But who? End of chapter 18